This country can't be knocked out with one punch. We get right back up again, and when we do, the world's gonna hear the roar of our engines. Yeah, it's halftime America, and our second half's about to begin. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what's a podcast tradesman doing out here? Aren't they all left-wingers out there? Like, left a Lenin? Well, that's what people think, but it's not really the case. There's a lot of conservative people, a lot of moderate people, Republicans, Democrats doing podcasts. It's just that conservative people, by nature of the word itself, play it a little close to the vest. They don't go around hot-dogging it. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so, but, but, but they're here. In fact, I just saw some of them around town. I saw Luke Savage. Luke's an Academy Award winner, a terrific guy, and these people are like-minded like all of us. And scene. <laughs> Welcome back, folks. Uh, we thought we'd do a little, I don't know, fun freebie because I was uh, absent in the line of duty last week and because for a long time we've relished the prospect of revisiting Clint Eastwood's uh, greatest moment. Will's a big fan of Clint Eastwood, so am I. And uh, we've long wanted to talk about the chair we all remember where we were when Clint Eastwood spoke to the chair. It's one of the, I think, I'm not even kidding, one of the defining moments of modern <laughs> politics, of modern conservatism. <laughs> Certainly one of the defining moments of the 2012 election campaign. Uh, one of the defining moments of pop culture. You know, it's hard to think of Clint Eastwood these days without your mind flickering, you know, at least momentarily to the chair. But I think it's important to put the chair moment in context. In 2012, Clint Eastwood's stock was very high. It was just a few years after Gran Torino, which was a movie that was a real like four quadrant hit. Conservatives, liberals, they all went to see it. And it, it really solidified Clint Eastwood's place as the tough talking elder statesman who uh, may not be politically correct, but speaks to our common core values a symbol of of America in, in all its messy and and difficult glory. And in 2012 during the Super Bowl, Clint appeared in a very well-received Super Bowl commercial for all the automakers of Detroit called Halftime in America, directed by David Gordon Green. And the commercial begins, we just watched it. In mm. fact, it, it begins with him walking through, I think, a parking garage. I felt my patriotism for Dodge uh, and GM just yeah. swelling. And it was, I think, kind of an homage to the uh, Morning in America, Ronald Reagan commercial, where, you know, it's, it's halftime in America and uh, Americans been beaten, but it, uh, but it always comes back up off of it. You're rolling your eyes. I, I, I come on, you didn't, you didn't feel it just a little bit. It's, it's like <laughs> it's such a shit. It's not even as good as it's morning in America because the whole thing just, you know, it's like any commercial you'd see on TV where there's some really emotional thing, and then at the end it's like, oh yeah, we're just trying to sell you something. Here's a picture of a brand. Yeah. Uh, so you see pictures of. Very diverse people. You see protesters. You see regular folk just going about their lives. See people being dropped off at school. People going to work. Clint tells you that you know there have been. He's lived through a lot in his days. See moments when people were divided. Moments when things came between us. But you know, in America, we're always we're always coming together. Ultimately, you know, he's seen a lot of things in his life. He's seen 
many ex-wives. He's seen uh, acrimonious divorces and breakups. He's been through uh, terrible lawsuits where he's, his honor has been, has been sullied in the press. Uh, but he's always come back, you know? <laughs> Just like Detroit. <laughs> Just like Detroit. And you know what? Detroit is kind of a synecdoche of America. You know, a lot of people wrote off Detroit for dead. In fact, I can think of one who said we should let Detroit go bankrupt. Do you know who it is? It's Mitt Romney. Uh, but despite all of those people who said that, Detroit came fighting back. And that's exactly what America's going to do. Now, when this commercial came out, I think it was widely perceived as being kind of an implicit Obama endorsement. Well, the Obama administration issued a massive bailout of the automotive industry, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, is credited with save probably one of the mm-hmm. major domestic legacies of the Obama administration. And this commercial, which was very well received, caught a lot of people by surprise because Clint Eastwood, of course, is not, not the farthest right guy, but definitely associated with conservatism well, and for the good Republican reason. Party. Yeah. I like the idea that Clint wouldn't actually understand what, because for yeah. all he hears is the jingoism yeah. and, and, and the corporate patriotism of it where like, mm-hmm. you know, all this inspiring message about Detroit and stuff actually just kind of ends with this crescendo of like General Motors and Ford and stuff. But to him, that's, yeah. you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get that there's like, you know, he's kind of standing for a liberal administration at a massive federal bailout. And Clint Eastwood, as a filmmaker, you know, to people like me, he's been interesting. And and honestly, it's like, to some extent, it's like such privileged white guy stuff to be interested in this sort of thing, like the contradictory politics of right. Clint Eastwood as a filmmaker. But he's somebody who, you know, to put it briefly, as a movie star, appeared in so many movies like Dirty Harry and its sequels that are kind of right-wing, crypto-fascistic law and order things. But as a director, he's often been attracted to stories that complicate that, whether it's a movie like Tightrope, whether it's Unforgiven, whether it's the later kind of prestige projects. Like he made a film about Nelson Mandela. You know, he, he's made directorial efforts that are sort of culturally liberal, let's right. say. Uh, Hollywood, In the way that Hollywood, Hollywood culturally stuff liberal is, yeah. stuff. We talked on the American Sniper episode about like, can there be such a thing as a good conservative artist and what does it what does it matter? And I think Clint Eastwood is an interesting conservative artist to me in the same way that say Norm MacDonald is an interesting conservative artist because they essentially have reactionary impulses, but they also are capable of a great deal of empathy. And they're good at the craft. Yeah, but it's that reactionary thing and the, and they're capacity for empathy that creates the tension in their work with with varying but sometimes good results yeah yeah clint eastwood i guess was shocked and uh, perturbed that this commercial was perceived as being a pro-obama commercial he made clear that he's not actually a supporter of mr obama and uh, you know my theory is that's probably why he was lured to the republican national convention to be the warm-up act for uh, the bundle of charisma that that is mitt romney and he was the speaker before Mitt Romney, yeah. as I recall, I remember watching this as it aired and it, it was leaked earlier that day that the RNC had lured him there. And I remember thinking that's a real coup for them. Like, yeah. This is one of the most beloved people in America that mm-hmm. they've got. Did you watch the chair speech when it aired? I don't remember if I watched it live. I mean, I definitely would have seen it as mm-hmm. you see, as inevitably these days you see anything like this within a few hours of it, <laughs> yeah. of it occurring. But uh, I mean, I remember it very well. I've got Mr. Obama sitting here. 
And he's, uh, I, I just was going to ask him a couple questions. So, Mr. President, how do you, uh, how do you handle, uh, how do you handle promises that you've made? You don't, you don't have it. Okay. Well, I know even some of the people in your own party were very disappointed when you didn't close Gitmo. Oh, you, what do you mean, shut up? <laughs> I, I know you were against uh, the war in Iraq, and uh, that's okay. Uh, but you thought the war in Afghanistan was, was uh, okay. You mentioned something about having a target date for bringing everybody home. And you give that target get, get, uh, date, and, uh, and I think uh, Mr. Romney asked the only sensible question. And he says, why are you giving the date out now? Why don't you just bring them home tomorrow morning? The, uh, what? what do you want me to tell Romney? I can't tell him to do that. I can't do that to himself. So we just revisited the speech. How did it compare to your memory of it? It was worse because I think that I must have watched it in fits and starts before because it's so cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. So to subject myself to all 11 minutes and 24 seconds of, long. of this YouTube video. Yeah. Um, and that's excluding kind of the intro where he comes out to the the music and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's got a big picture of him as a silhouette of him as a cowboy out behind yeah. it or whatever. And I'd forgotten just how incoherent the speech is. Like, it's not something that kind of has a a coherent message delivered badly or something where he's done five minutes of prep and then he's kind of, you know, run out of runway. <laughs> I mean, it just is a train wreck from start to finish. There's a lot of pauses and false starts where he kind of tries to make a point. There's a lot of moments where you can just see, you know, his brain turning over very slowly, kind of sputtering as it tries to remember you know, names and places and things like that. And it's really, it's quite something. So the the speech famously is framed around a conversation that he has with an invisible Barack Obama. Yeah, he's performing a kind of a, a seance with, yeah. with, with Obama. And it's an interrogation where he's going to talk to this Obama who's not there. He's, of course, got a chair next to him. And the invisible Obama is very badly <coughs> behaved. It says all kinds of lewd things. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite something because, you know, we've seen a lot of Obama over the years. Generally a pretty even-tempered man. Uh-huh. Not someone prone to uh, outbursts of profanity. And yet this is the Obama who, it's implied, greets him here. Perhaps because he's never had a truth-teller in front of him quite like this. The other thing about it is, you know, Eastwood does actually seem... I mean, so, you know, we could talk about how incoherent his message box is. The fact that he sort of seems to be attacking the Obama administration, I mean, crudely put, from the left. He's Several times, yeah. Yeah, he's he criticized Obama for driving a gas guzzler. He, uh... I mean, he sounds like a Hollywood liberal. He sort of attacks him on, well, so you're against the Iraq war and that's good. And you thought Afghanistan was a good idea. And he attacks him for not having closed Gitmo and things like that. Well, he's conflicted on Gitmo. Well, okay, his first thing is he's going to attack him on all his empty promises. And of course, the big empty promise was that he didn't close Guantanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. Um, But then as he's saying this, he realizes that oh, actually, it's good that he didn't close at Guantanamo Bay. So then he pivots to, uh, I guess you you got the good idea that it was bad to to try terrorists in downtown New York. Yeah, so So. he he just kind of goes around in circles like that. But what struck me is how uncomfortable he seemed to be to just lean into fully conservative messaging. Yeah. Like his, his overall frame is this kind of idea that 
he was excited by Obama and he's been kind of let down by it and like let's just there's maybe a bit of a problem and too many people are unemployed so just maybe it's time for somebody else to have a a crack at it yeah he Um, ends the speech by saying something like you know, we don't have to twist ourselves in knots to to vote for someone who who's really not that great or that he he, he seems kind of nice. And it's like, what audience are you addressing? These uh-huh. people are not conflicted about Barack Obama. They hate him. Yeah, this is a braying mob. It's yeah. the easiest crowd in the country for like addressing the RNC is probably one of the yeah. easiest tasks. And you know, once or once in a while in the speech, speech Eastwood kind of hits it like when he says. Um, you know, like attorneys, they have to weigh everything. And, you know, I don't think lawyers should be president. Uh, why don't we? What if we just maybe a businessman? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and that's yeah. such like red meat for this crowd it's, of like it's, RNC delegates. Yeah, it's so cheap though. Like every now and then he'll he'll say something like, "Yeah, that thing about we shouldn't try terrorists in New York City." It's like, and he just occasionally hits it. It's the RNC. All you got to do is stars and stripes. You say some shit about the troops. You talk about, uh, you say something about the firefighters on 9-11. Yeah. You talk about how there needs to be lower taxes. Uh, yeah. It's the easiest crowd there is, and he can't even pull it off. Because I don't think he prepared anything. Clint Eastwood is presumably someone who, on a few hours notice, if invited to speak at the RNC, there was so, there's probably somebody he could have gone to be like, write me a speech. Mm-hmm. But he, he couldn't be bothered. Clearly, the terms of him being there were either... Mitt Romney's team was just so excited to have him that they didn't think to ask him for for a written speech. It must have been it. Or the condition was we don't have to supply you with a speech, and they were mm-hmm. like, whatever, you know, just just go ahead. You know, how how bad could it be? So he riffs, and uh, and he's a virtuoso. What are some of the other criticisms he goes after Obama? He he says it's okay that he was against the Iraq War, but he was for Afghanistan, and like, how can you justify that? You know, I think perhaps that could be uh, that could be explored a little more. But he, but he, the audience reaction is interesting because, again, it's the RNC. They're they're primed for this, and you can sense this current going through them. Like, should we applaud that? I don't. I don't think so. I love the audience reactions because it's clear that they want to like them. They want to like it. Some of them are are I think just kind of enjoying it and they're not actually quite aware of how bad it is. But then you do see parts where people are actually not standing up to applaud and stuff because they just don't know. You know, I, I really like the anguish shots to uh, Paul Ryan and his <laughs> wife who, who just know that the cameras are on them. So they know they have to clap. And they have this like fixed Jack Nicholson Joker grin on yeah. their faces through it all. But, but yeah, their eyes reveal everything. With the Iraq-Afghanistan thing, he says something like, oh, maybe maybe before we went into Afghanistan, you should have asked the Russians who were there 10 years. Uh, which And people oh, just applaud. Well, Obama didn't even go into Afghanistan. It was the Bush administration that went in. And every delegate that's watching would have supported both yeah. wars, <laughs> hook, line, and sinker. So yeah. it's, completely, it's completely incoherent, just like everything else he says in the speech. I do think maybe there's a bit of a commentary on the kind of Romney-Ryan incarnation of the Republican Party here, even though it is just kind of Eastwood fucking up. Mm. Um, Because I do think their whole message was a little bit incoherent. I mean, if I'm an RNC kind of ideologue, uh, looking back at that campaign, right, it was kind of incoherent. I mean, sure, they they had a basic conservative messaging and 
Romney had this stupid thing about we basically kind of wrote off half the country as dependent parasites or whatever. But it was not it, it lacked the shall we say the elan of you know the next wave of conservatism mm-hmm. um and you know romney himself and kind of and you know we'll get to this on a future episode because we are very keen to revisit the whole kind of romney thing <laughs> uh we're gonna have a lot of fun with that at some point but i mean romney people may have forgotten the cavalcade of mutants that he had to you know repel in order to win the nomination and the whole time it was unlike the last republican nomination it was very predictable in the sense that you know these people would kind of have a a surge in the polls and then some gaffe would sink them it was it was a very predictable primary the media would successfully kind of discipline the rnc base and it'd be like uh, okay, you've had your fun with this Newt Gingrich thing, but you have to get back to Romney. That's what's serious. Keep your eyes on the prize. Now, no, Michelle Bachman, okay, well, that's nice. You had your fun. Herman Cain. Um, Herman Cain, friend of the show. Um, uh, uh, Rick Santorum was another one. Santorum. Uh, oh, uh, Rick Perry. <laughs> there was Rick Perry, who couldn't remember uh, you know, which department. The, the, yeah, the since resurrected on the next, uh, <laughs> so I guess we read the, the crest of the next wave of uh, feral reactionary conservatism. You know, Romney was kind of the establishment figure of this bunch and uh, the campaign that he ran against Obama. Neither the Democrats or the Republicans ran a particularly compelling or interesting campaign. And I guess just kind of Obama ended up carrying it by not a huge margin on on kind of just points. He he ran on don't switch horses in midstream. Yeah, great. One of the big issues of that campaign was Obamacare. And it's not like Mitt Romney could really successfully go after him for that. And I do think American conservatism had not, I mean, I'm not trying to exonerate it at all because that RNC was every bit as terrifying and offensive and fascistic as, you know, any is. Mm -hmm. But I mean... I think it had yet to embrace this kind of wacko, carnivalesque, entirely id-driven energy that it would later kind of ride in which the the Trump thing would kind of pick up on, which is a which is a more you know, it's a more naked version of the same thing. Well I remember in Romney's speech, I think he devoted one line to uh, climate change, which was like you know, the president wants to stop the rising of the oceans. I want to increase jobs. And that, right. that was that line. And then there was one line about, I will defend the sanctity of life. Now they would lean into that a little more. Yeah, and RNC delegates, many of the time, would have read those things quite correctly as just sort of things that the Romney speechwriters just boxes that they were ticking. Mm-hmm. Whereas now they've got somebody who will just indulge all of those things uh, mm-hmm. kind of to the utmost will never shut up about them will constantly peddle deal in inane conspiracy theories uh whatever and that's frankly a lot more what they're looking for than this more kind of institutionally minded uh you know foundation hatched uh quote-unquote respectable conservatism so i think it's fair to say there were some bumps in clint eastwood's speech but <laughs> Back to the speech. But it did end on a high note, which was like the audience, I think, to its credit, tried to bail him out. Yeah. Uh, They kept, at several points, calling out, make my day, make my day. Like, they wanted him to say some fucking lines, you know, play the hits. One of the the hecklers finally gets through to him. You can just see him kind of... He gives this dirty, hairy look to uh to her. He sees the life raft being thrown at him. you You want me to make your day? All right. I'll, I'll start it and you finish it. Go ahead. And then the whole audience goes, make my day. And then he's like, thank you, good night. And then he does this little smile, which is, it's like, nailed it. 
it's like he's he's quite pleased with himself as he's leaving the stage. He's like, I thought that I thought that went pretty well. It gave birth to one of my favorite Onion headlines of all time, which was just, "You did great." Terrified in turn tells Clint Eastwood. The speech didn't win Mitt Romney the election, and I mean, it's it, you know, it's funny in retrospect that after this speech, people were saying things like, you know, what what a symbol this sent to America. Like this no. is no, no, but no, hang on, <laughs> stay with me. Like the symbol is that this is the party of old white men. Like, c- can you believe that this is what they were trying to send to America? Uh, which, in retrospect, is funny. <laughs> I mean, given the messaging turn that the Republican Party has had since then, I would also say that this speech, I think, uh, was the birth of the latest stage of Clint Eastwood's career, which is the kind of uh, Fox News grandpa, Uh, you know, American Sniper and a a beautiful film called The The 1517 to Paris. You know, I ha- Sully. Sully. Sully uh, continues his career-long distrust of pencil-pushing bureaucrats <laughs> and embracing, you know, just the, the 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 common wisdom of the man, the the, the man in the line of duty. The fifteen seventeen to Paris, I think, is a lovely film because it's about you know the three guys who foiled that that train terrorist attack. But most most of the movie is just <sighs> them hanging around Europe. I can't keep up with these, man. And it's just, it just kind of follows them in this like semi-documentary style. And like, he got the real guys to play them and almost nothing happens in it. And it's just this, it's absurd. And it's clearly just him, an old man trying to capture beauty, his idea of beauty, which is, you know, cool alphas having fun in Europe. And it's like his, his version of Monet's water lilies. So in conclusion, a beautiful artist, a great man. Can I, can I say one more thing about the chair itself in the speech? Yeah. The, the chair, you know, revisiting it didn't occupy quite as much of the speech as I remembered. You don't Be- see it much. Yeah. Well, and it's sort of like the chair is his lifeline. It's a device he invents early because he realizes within about like 60 or 40 seconds of starting the speech that he's got, he's got nothing. Yeah. So he turns the chair. The chair is like... That's that's his his federal bailout, you know, <laughs> and uh, and and I do kind of like what the chair signifies, which is how difficult the Republicans found it to campaign against Barack Obama, um, and I'm reminded of a, a great line from a very prescient 2007 write up about Obama, um, which was that you can't run against him because you can't find him on the political spectrum. Mm. I like this uh, Clint Eastwood having to just invent. An imaginary <laughs> Obama who also isn't even, he's not a very well-developed character he, during the speech. He's an angry, foul-mouthed he's, man. He's got, nothing, he's got nothing to do with Obama. Yeah. But, you know, they don't really have much to kind of go after Obama on because Obama was so ideologically malleable and he yeah. was so non-committal about anything. Like yeah. Obama, I do think, was kind of hard for many Republicans to to challenge, which is why they had to attack him on these kind of abstract terms about, you know, oh, well, you said you'd bring people hope and you didn't do it and broken promises and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I know that there was, you know, years of them trying to, you know, label him a communist and all this kind of stuff. But I do think the fact that mainstream electoral conservatism has evidenced by Clint Eastwood talking to an empty chair you know, that's that's not a bad metaphor for the difficulties that they had, you know, running against him in this election. Mm-hmm. You know what Clint Eastwood should have done? He should have said to him, yeah, you introduced this health care system with these death panels. And let me tell you, I'm getting up in age and 
If I see you over my hospital bed with a pillow, you'd better make my day. And then, boom, everybody <laughs> applauds. Wouldn't he, that have been great? He could have just said that after two minutes and walked off the stage. Yeah. And, and then it would have been like a triumph of a speech. Yeah. But Donald Trump came along a few years later and he taught uh, Clint that, that the thing to do is not to kind of compromise and appear respectable. It's to lean into all of the worst impulses of this crowd, not to try to be above them or to try to kind of maintain the decorum of a, you know, modest dissenter within Hollywood, but to just embrace the fact that this whole thing is empty entertainment and uh, the audience wants to have their prejudices pandered to, which are many, uh, and that that's the way to win elections, not from respectability or from the center, but but by embracing the darkest, most noxious shit and uh, not relying on empty chairs to do it. Now watch this drive. And I'm speaking out for everybody out there. It, it doesn't hurt. We don't have to be... I don't say that word anymore. Well, maybe one last time. We don't have to be, what I'm saying is we don't have to be metal masochists and vote for somebody that we don't even really want in, the, in, the, uh, in office. We, just because they uh, seem to be nice guys or maybe not so nice guys if you look at some of the recent ads going out there, I don't know. But, but um, okay. You want to make my day, huh? Uh, All right, I'll start it, you finish it. Go ahead. All right, thank you. Thank you very much.